Hello, everyone. Welcome to Be The One. I'm Aaron. Hi, everyone. And I'm Fanny. And I'm so excited to be talking to Aaron today about Aaron. I'm excited to be talking to you as well. Yeah. Maybe not so much about myself. But. I know. It's really hard to talk about ourselves sometimes, but I think that you have um, such an in- interesting and impactful story that I know you touched my heart by just meeting you the day that I met you. Mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about you and your story and how that day that we met in your office when I discovered that you suffered with depression and you kept that in for so long and you finally let it out. Mm-hmm. Well, my story begins a long, I feel like a long time ago, probably 27 years ago now, about the age of 13, give or take, maybe actually a little earlier. I'm not sure when the depression started. To the point now, even where really I look back at my life and it's kind of just always been there with me. Mm-hmm. How did you, when did you realize you, you had it, had depression or that you suffered, you know, all those years ago? I did not realize until the age of 27 when I had gone to the army, which I now call my six week vacation because I eventually got a general discharge Uh, I actually almost died a few times and there was some, my mental health was deteriorating because of a a lot of things. And they eventually said, Hey, you know, thanks, but no thanks. We're going to send you home. And I went to my general practitioner and we were talking and I was saying, yeah, you know, the chaplain said I might have depression. And my doctor asked me, he goes, when's the last time you were happy? I'm like, Oh, I don't know. Like, you know, I was maybe happy last week when I came home. He's like, well, what I mean is, how long have you been like in a good mood, happy for say a week or two? And I looked at him and I said, I don't know, maybe sixth grade. Oh my gosh, sixth <laughs> grade. Yeah. And even then, now that I think about it, probably more like third grade. Oh. Um, like the, the last time that, that I didn't have like this general sense of, of dread and this general sense of really hating myself and demeaning myself and... So he put me onto Zoloft and I did not start any kind of therapy. So I did not do very well with my treatment. I was working, you know, a retail job, still in the throes of my depression. And I'm sure the Zoloft helped a little bit, but for me, it it wasn't really enough. And I didn't realize it was enough. I want to go back to third grade for a minute. Yes. So in third grade, when you... Maybe it was the last time that you really felt happy for a week. Did you experience any bullying or anything like that that could trigger something like depression? Um, Third grade, no, but I did start getting really bullied around fifth grade and sixth grade. I was always, and I'm not trying to like toot my own horn here, but I was typically in the more advanced classes. As far as reading, I my, my mother always said I was an old soul. So I reacted differently. I was always a little more emotional and I would show that emotion. And as you know, little boys growing up, you start hitting fifth, sixth grade and it's not okay to show emotion anymore. It's not being a boy, a rough and tumble boy. It's not being a man. You're just being emotional like a girl, which I, these days I feel like if you were to say that, it's a little more understood that guys are actually emotional. But yeah, fifth or sixth grade, being that old soul, being a little more emotional I was definitely picked on. I mean, when I was in seventh grade, that was probably the worst year of my life was seventh grade. So what, probably around 13. 
Were you able to talk about that with your family or friends? Or did you have anybody that supported you? Like, I see these kids bullying you and give you advice or help at that age. My mom knew the kids were bullying me uh, on the school bus. And so she would take me to school for that reason. But, you know, from what I remember, no, there weren't teachers or anything like that. It was just, you know, kids being kids in a giant school. You would never, of course, rat anybody out because snitches get stitches. So... (laughs) I would just, you know, that is very true. Yeah, it's, that is I very just true. suffer in in my really suffer inside myself. Well, that, that that's so sad, and I'm gonna, I'm just going back now. So we go third grade, fifth grade, and then you're in the army, and you almost died a couple of times. So I just want to say that I'm really happy that you're still here. I am too. It was an interesting, uh, not to like I guess sidetrack the story, but the the time that that really hit me. I remember um, I actually made my peace. You know, with the with the universe, I was like, well, I guess this is it. And it was actually probably one of the more peaceful times in my life where I realized it was coming to an end. Which, you know, if you think about it in its own way was, maybe I was just happy I was escaping the depression. Wow. Maybe I was happy that I wasn't going to have to deal with that anymore. And I was, in that brief moment, content. That's a pretty profound statement right you know, there. I'd, I'd actually never thought about it that way until this very moment. Wow. So. And that could that 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 definitely could be right. Oh, absolutely. Because then you you came home mm-hmm. and you went to the doctors mm-hmm. and they said asking you that question you really didn't have it, but in that one moment you did it when did. you thought you were when you thought you were leaving. Yeah. So tell us then after your doctor. So after my doctor, I you know was on Zoloft. I was not going to any kind of therapy, anything like that. And even even then, what that'd be thirteen years ago, mental health isn't where. It is now. It wasn't at the forefront of people's minds. It was still a, a hidden, almost shadow. I, I feel like it was like a shadow type of thing where you couldn't talk about it because, again, people were like, oh, well, you're crazy, so you see a shrink. So there was, you know, as we've discussed with your story on, on last week's episode, just that sense of shame of talking about it. And we know that that's why we're here. This is a huge stigma. So, so you lived with that shame. Oh, I lived with it. Absolutely. For years and years and years. And for so many years, I didn't understand. And even after I did understand, I was like, oh, I have depression. And I was like, okay. But eventually I stopped my Zoloft because I didn't feel like going back to the doctor. And I didn't have a lot of money. So co-pays and for doctors and medication, I was like, eh, it's not really doing anything for me. So I quit cold turkey, which I never recommend. That is not a great way to get off your antidepressant. No, because what I have learned, and it was actually um, kind of an interesting side note to my own story, is that my late husband was on Zoloft, and he went off cold turkey, and two weeks later is when he had his attempt. Mm -hmm. And so often, those things go hand in hand. Absolutely. They do. it. You know, you kind of build up and and things start to feel a little bit better. And that is honestly a time when a lot of people will quit and will be like, oh, I feel fine. I don't need it anymore. But it's not like it's penicillin. It's not like it's getting rid of. It's it's helping to really kind of bring up the lows and bring down the highs and, and even you out a little bit. So I quit it and I, I did what I did. And, you know, life continued. But that was when I think I really probably started drinking more heavily too. You know, a lot of people will self-medicate. They'll when you're really buzzed or you're drunk, you're not thinking about the pain. You're having fun. It's it's that moment where the depression moves off to the side and you can feel alive and you can feel free and you can feel like you've got a future. 
But what happens then when the alcohol wears off, when alcohol is a depressant? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the that's the exact flip side. So then you've got, you know, you wake up the next day and you feel horrible and you've got a hangover and the depressant side kicks in and you're just like, oh, I'm just a miserable wretch of a person. Look at me. And, you know, I'm getting drunk all the time and I'm, you know, saying bad things to people because, you know, sometimes you get so drunk you black out, unfortunately. And for me, that was honestly a behavior that I probably carried through until about two years ago, give or take. It was definitely a self-medication. Well, I'm really proud of you to be able to to get off the self-medication, medicating wagon, because that's such a common thing. And I think that's one thing that's really important to bring up, because if you notice, you know, to our listeners, if they notice somebody or their loved one that may have a change in behavior... And that includes self-medicating an increase in alcohol or drugs that could definitely be a warning sign to someone that's suffering from something deeper. Everybody's depression is different. So I, when I, I try to talk to people about my depression, I always tell them that depression is, it's almost like a shadow version of myself. It's its own person. It's its own monster. And it lives with me. And depression at least is is the way i've experienced it is it wants to live at all costs it will tell me anything so that it can live and depression tells lies and falsehoods and it's always whispering in the back of your head you're not good enough that person really doesn't like you they're laughing but they're really laughing at you you're never going to amount to anything you're not and and no matter what you tell it it just takes that and it spins it around and it turns it on you and that was what I lived with. And when I was drinking or for those people who maybe they're into drugs, whatever, that's how they silence that voice. That's how they make that voice go away. So that they have that brief moment of peace in their own head where they don't feel like a complete piece of garbage. Yeah. And I think that I see that too, um, from my own situations that, you know, cutting to mm-hmm. escape pain, mm-hmm. um, other addictions to it, eating disorders. I mean, all these things go hand in hand that we're trying to um, mask or like with the eating disorder, it's like control. Mm-hmm. I don't have control. I want to control something. Or what is it chemically within our brain that is making us want to drink more, not want to eat to control ourselves. So, so that must have been a really hard place to be in. And when we look at that, up to two years ago. I mean, so you're like helping yourself and bettering yourself today. Mm-hmm. And what did it take for you to get there? Well, uh, it took uh, actually a really, <laughs> really stupid act on my part. Um, so I had gotten married six years ago, somebody we've been married for now 10 years. And about two years ago, uh, I guess you would say I was having inappropriate text conversations. My wife found out. Um, and honestly, that was the moment when I was like, oh my God, what am I, what am I doing? Like, mm-hmm. and she had even, you know, my, my wife had even said, you know, I think you're depressed. You've got these issues. And at that point I had convinced myself that I had gotten past my depression and all I had actually done was rewired myself to completely integrate it to the point where I wasn't really even feeling anything anymore. Like right and wrong. I mean, obviously, you know, in the sense I'm not going to go out and start murdering people, but the sense of like right and wrong, good and evil, it started to 
to really kind of blur as as I integrated it. And I wasn't feeling emotions. I wasn't feeling really love unless it was like a really powerful emotion that could overcome that. Well, I just want to ask you a question. Did yeah. you do you feel like the the inappropriate texting relationship was kind of like the high? You know, kind of like what the what the drug does or what the Absolutely. alcohol does. So you basically substituted one for another to get Absolutely. another high. Absolutely. Because if you okay. think about it, when I'm, you know, when I was drinking and I would, you know, be drunk and be like, I don't have this pain. And again, it's that that voice whispering to you. Well, if you're having a conversation with somebody and they're interested in you and they're interested in what you have to say and they say that you're funny and, and, and attractive and all that. That's absolutely that high for that very brief, brief, brief moment, the depression quiets and you feel that thing that you don't normally feel. And I think for people who don't have depression, they may feel that way just kind of normally, not always on this high, but without that voice telling you you're a terrible, terrible person, um, there's just a certain level of freedom. And again, it was a terrible thing to do. And, you know, my, my wife and I have discussed it, but it was something that needed to happen. Much like us meeting, not everything that needs to happen is good. A lot of times it's really bad. And even losing your husband, so much good has come out of that. And from that moment, you know, I, I resisted still, even after that moment with, with those text conversations that getting help and until, Eventually, you know, I had the ultimatum of, you know, go see a therapist or we're, we're completely done. Well, I didn't want to be done because that would really, I mean, that'd be horrible. So I finally went out and got that help that I needed. I would have think that if you wouldn't have, it would have brought you down into a deeper hole. Absolutely. And it would have spiraled down even worse. Absolutely. So sometimes that's what's interesting is something negative has to happen in order for something positive to happen. And I think one thing that was really hard for me was people saying everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. But like you also said, I, I didn't know why why did I have to experience the loss? Why did my kids have to lose their dad? Why do you have to suffer the way you did, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that as life unfolds and you continue down your journey, you're able to see the why. Absolutely. Hindsight is I, I now when I look back, being where I'm at with my depression managed I look back and I kind of see everything that happened, everything I did. I see the people that I've hurt. Um, I see myself that I've hurt. And it just kind of all came into view. Okay, this is a part of the story that I needed to go through to get to where I'm at to be able to help people in the future. You know, Aaron, what I really um, admire about you is your transparency and to share so much about things that aren't always easy to talk about. And I really appreciate that. And I know that others do too. But I think it's really important. It was like all of a sudden one day you decided that you needed to take care of you. Mm-hmm. And at that moment when you decided to go to therapy and get the help. So tell us more how you take care of you now. Yeah. And I mean, it's for the longest time, self-care, like I said, was drinking. It was doing whatever I could to forget kind of that. I was, again, a terrible person. And I was very much a people pleaser. I know a lot of people are people pleasers. And I would just try to find my own happiness by making other people happy. So when I finally found my therapist who, you got to find the right therapist. I got to say this right now, you have to find the right therapist. The first therapist I went to, she was very nice. We just didn't really jive well. We never got anywhere. And when I found my, my new therapist, 
um, who I've been seeing now for just over a year, it was like this instant kind of like clicking, like we just got each other. She could explain what I needed as I needed to hear it. I could talk to her. So you have to have that rapport. And, you know, one thing she said to me that I really took to heart was people pleasers don't set boundaries. So anybody can do whatever they want to you. You have no boundaries. You don't care about yourself. You're basically saying everybody else is more important than you. And that was huge to me to think, wait, this whole time I've been trying to make everybody else happy. And really all I've been doing to myself is saying that, Aaron, you don't matter. And what does that do? Like when you tell yourself over and over, and then I realize that's the depression. The people pleasing isn't that I'm trying to make other people happy. I'm trying to make myself happy. And when I realized that, and of course with the help, I did go back onto Zoloft and I, you know, and the therapy. So between all of that and those realizations now that I didn't have earlier, I said, well, I, I am worth something. I'm worth just as much as everybody else. No more, no less. We're all worth something. And we're all worth equal as people. And once I realized that, it, it really changed my perspective on how I see the world. Instead of seeing people, like even people who are, are murderers, you know, rapists, whatever. I look at those people now and I don't say to myself, those people are scum. I say those people are hurting. They don't understand I don't know what happened. And, and sometimes, yeah, it can be chemical. But even then, if it's chemical, if it's something in the brain, it's still not them. It's like my depression wasn't me, but it could have been a chemical. What do you do with that? So now I, I try to look at people with a lot more compassion and say, okay, what is it that's causing this? I really do think, you know, all things being equal, if people could be, they would be good, I think. Um, I truly believe that, but people just haven't reached that level of understanding in their lives necessarily. And for those people who do, like myself, I'm very thankful and I'm very grateful. Um, and I, you know, sometimes kind of fall back into my old ways in the sense that I might get a little like, oh, that person is this way. And then I have to stop and be like, but there's a reason they're this way and I'm not any better than them. So I need to hear their story. You know, one thing that I say and I think it's kind of kind of powerful, is that hurt people hurt people. Absolutely. And I think that's basically what you're saying right there. But I really admire your strength and being able to get to that moment of knowing that you needed to get the therapist. And I think you bring up a really, really good point that I just want to emphasize is that not all therapists are for you. Mm -hmm. And so often when you are with the one that's not for you, you don't go back, you don't search out for another one. And I just like, keep going back, find, find that one Absolutely. that can help you like you did. So tell us, bring us to, um, when we met mm -hmm. and we had, we talked about it in our first, first podcast and how you, you, you said yourself that you sobbed. What mm -hmm. brought you to that moment that day? As you were telling the story about your husband, Rob, and you were talking about just his sadness and everything that was, he was going through, I 100% sympathized. I had, throughout my marriage, especially, you know, the drinking, that sort of stuff, I'd find that freedom. But by the end of the night, it would always come back and the depression would, would take hold even stronger. And I mean, there were a couple nights there was one, I woke up still drunk on the couch in the basement where apparently I had just fallen asleep and I decided that this wasn't worth it anymore. Like I'm causing other people too much pain. I'm causing 
myself too much pain. What's the point? And I remember I grabbed a Blu-ray DVD and in my head I had the idea, hey, I'm going to snap this in half and then I can just, you know, cut my wrists and we'll be good to go. Well, I worked on that stupid thing for like two, three minutes. It would not snap. In a way, it was Spider-Man Homecoming. So I like to say maybe Spider-Man saved me. Yeah. But it wouldn't snap. So then I just tried digging with the edge of it and then that didn't work. And then I was like, well, this just sucks. So I fell back asleep. Uh, and of course, the next morning I woke up, and I was like, "Ooh, I'm glad that didn't happen. But in that moment, it had me. And there had been other nights even where I remember sitting on the kitchen floor with a, you know, a knife in my hand and kind of just feeling the edge and being like, this can all be over. This can all be over. And so many people have said it. And until you've actually been in that situation, you know, it's not a matter of wanting to die. You don't want to die. You just want the pain to end. You want to stop hurting your loved ones. You just want it all to go away. And that's the easy way to make it go away. And I don't want, I don't want to say that's the easy way out. Like, no. like, oh, it's cowardice. It's just your brain gets to the point where it says, this makes sense. Yeah. The depression is taking over. Absolutely. And so you're fighting against depression. Yes. And I think that's one thing that's really important to remember. So I want to ask you just from being on the other side of mm-hmm. someone that has lost, you know, when we talk about like our definition petition, and how we talk about things and changing the conversation. And when I talk about that, does that, like when I say suicide is a side effect of an illness or suicide is not a choice, you know, does that trigger you at all? Or does that bring comfort to you? What is it when we talk from our side? It doesn't bring comfort in the sense that it's still a comfortable idea. I 100% agree with it. And the reason being is, is not once, again, in any of those times in my darkest moments did I think to myself, I just want to die. It is absolutely a side effect of, of the depression. Because if it weren't for that, I never would have had that thought, right? Right. So I wasn't just like one day like, oh, you know, it'd be fun. I'll just kill myself by suicide. No, of course not. It was pain. It was sickness. It was disease. If we can change the conversation then yeah. and bring it back to... Um, suicide is a side effect of an illness. So so we can take the cancer patient mm-hmm. and we can say, what does a cancer patient do when they find out they have cancer? They talk to their family, they go to the doctor, they get a plan, they get treatment, and then they go five years for checkup. You've mm-hmm. come to a couple of our I Understand events and we recently had a five-year anniversary celebration and you, we hosted Ginger Z. She came in and talked about her own mental health. And um, we had some of our own speakers that we're hoping to have on our on this podcast um, soon. But after you left, how did you feel about I Understand? Did you, was it an uplifting experience? It was absolutely uh, uplifting in the sense that knowing that there's just other people out there who are like you, who have felt this, who want to make it known that it's okay to talk about it and it's okay to feel this way. And the only way to really get around and to change it is, is to talk about it. So people being so raw and so honest and seeing all the people in the audience who may or may not be dealing with it, supporting them. It was just so much support. And there was, I'm going to be honest, way more people there than I thought there was going to be. I did not realize how many people were going to be there. And I saw friends, um, business people and business friends. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is like a huge community of people that I know of people who are 
I guess I would say maybe more like giants of, of uh, society around here in our area. And I was just like, wow, it's just people everywhere meeting to really just support each other and hear stories and understand that, you know, love does heal. And I ask that question because sometimes I think that people are, are turned away because they don't want to talk about mental health and they don't want to talk about suicide. And I think that we do that in such a positive way, mm-hmm. not letting our illness define who we are, not letting my loved one be defined by how he died rather than who he really was. Mm-hmm. So in, in one of the other things that we really try to do, and it's in our message, I understand love heals. And love truly does heal. And tell me how love has helped you heal within yourself. It it has been a a huge life-altering experience. When I first started to understand what loving yourself was, that it means that you are just as good as anybody else. Your opinion matters just as anybody else. I'm going to tell you. I started walking with like my back a little bit straighter, shoulders a little more back. I just felt more confidence as I was walking along. I've, you know, made some decisions in my life that are, you know, a lot of people consider pretty drastic. Um, and I just know that they're right for me. And they're decisions I never would have made before when I was depressed because, again, that people-pleasing Aaron who has no boundaries, who doesn't care about himself because he's so selfless, but really he was selfish in a bad way. And now I'm being selfish in a good way because here's here's what it comes down to is that I can't be happy as myself and I can't make those selfish decisions that improve the quality of my life. I'm not going to be able to help anybody else. And I think that happens a lot with people who have that depression because that voice is telling you you're not worth anything. You say to yourself, why would I spend any resources on improving this and changing my life? Because I'm not worth it. But you are worth it. And and the problem is, is it's like chicken or the egg. I have to believe it just a little bit to be able to start to go down that path. Or I need someone to at least maybe believe in it for me. And then once you start going down that path and it's that slow realization that, yes, I am worth it. And it's a lot of work. You know, my therapist has said, I'm, I'm not the one who does the work. It's you. And I mean, I went sometimes twice a week, once a week. I was doing the work. I was doing the thinking. I was doing the consideration. And I just got to that point where I said, I am worth it. And I've surrounded myself with friends who are like, you know, we we see where you've come from and, you know, you're doing great. I've surrounded myself with a support system. But I mean, in the end, it's me seeing myself as intrinsically valuable to the people around me. And that has, it's, it's changed everything in my demeanor, the way I approach things, the way I try to look at other people now with love and especially myself, is completely different than I would have a year or two ago. Well, you definitely are the epitome of love. And (laughs) sharing that and helping us understand that, because I think it's really, really hard to get to that self-love place. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes, you know, we can be on these journeys and we can look for so many other people to make us happy. But at the end of the day, It only takes one person, and that one person is me. That Mm -hmm. one person is you. And sometimes when we say, be the one, it's be the one for yourself. I um, so appreciate, again, your transparency and sharing your story. And I appreciate so much that we have come together to be the one for each other. 
to be the one to help hopefully other people. And for those that want to find out more, go to our website, www.iunderstandloveheals.org or Facebook or Instagram. And we look forward to talking to you next week. We'd also like to thank Chris, our producer. As always, wonderful. Thank you for listening to Be The One. And don't forget, love heals. You say everything happens for a reason. Life has its own seasons. In the wind, you can only feel the snow. Start to wonder if those flowers gonna grow. So in the snow, so in the rain. It's all a part of how our seasons change.